Yeah, there you go. Thanks. Tough crowd today. Wow. Uh, well, welcome, guys. Look at your neighbor and say howdy. Howdy. Yeah. We're in Texas, right? Um, I'm so grateful for all of you guys being here today, especially on Labor Day weekend. I mean, you could have been doing anything else, but you decided to spend the first part of your day here at church. Um, so grateful for you guys. And today we're starting a really cool series called Monsters Within. Look at your neighbor and say, rawr. Oh, wow. A little uncomfortable, right? A little uncomfortable? Some y'all, there's so many safety seats that you have to look across the room. <laughs> um, we are doing Monsters Within. And one thing that I'm really excited about this series is with a series like the title Monsters Within, You'd almost assume that we're talking about uh, before a person gives their life to Christ. The monsters that we have in ourselves before. But the scary issues that we're really going to be talking about are the things within us even after we are reborn in Christ. The things that lurk within our heart even after we have given our life to Christ. And with... Going into today's message specifically, we're going to be talking, uh, our title today is Anxious and Depressed. Anxious and Depressed. And um, if you could cut the, cut the music, it, it's still playing in the background. Um, anxious and Depressed. I got anxious with the music playing in the background. If you've ever experienced anxiety or depression, it, they're like chains to your soul. Anxiety and depression are the most common monsters, but the least discussed. But I would say even more recently, it has been a topic of a discussion, but it, I would say that it's still the least resolved. That even now that we talk about it more often, but it's rare that people really feel resolved about anxiety and depression. Often we hear about it, but rarely do you feel like you received something useful to combat it. In fact, after talking about it or having a discussion, you may even feel more afraid to bring it up again because you should be fixed now. You shouldn't have to talk about it anymore. You should be fixed after that conversation we had. I hope today is not just informational, but that is actually useful and helpful in your journey with Christ. And I want to share with you guys this verse in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 10. And... It says in that verse, each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can fully share its joy. No one knows each other's own bitterness and no one knows someone else's joy. What this verse is saying is that all the sorrows that you have, every person has sorrows. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a situation in their life that they could describe and it would be something to feel bad about. Everybody in this world. And the Bible is telling us that every person has their own sorrows, that not one other human being in the world can fully understand what you've been through. They can sympathize with you, yes. But not, not another human being can fully, 100%, identify with you 
Because every one of us has had different upbringings. Every one of us has had different childhoods. Every one of us has had different experiences. And even though they may be similar, they're still different. The only person that can truly identify with our souls is Jesus Christ. He's the only person that knows everything about you. He, he literally can feel your emotion. He, he knows he's omnipresent. He, he's there all the time. He knows what you think. He knows what you feel. He's the only person that can fully identify with you. And when it comes to this specific topic about anxiety and depression, it made me think of, uh, recently I feel like, uh, can I be just extra open with you guys today? I will be. (laughs) I I was, recently I've been thinking about the times, what my life was like before I gave my life to Christ. And as a lot of you know already that I I was not raised in church. I had a lot of drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Most of my friends were gang members growing up. It was a very, you know, not a, not a church cookie cutter, you know, traditional statement. And I remember the first time that I can recollect feeling anxiety was when I was a junior in high school and I had moved to Florida um, out of nowhere. Uh, I was, it, was, it was unexpected. I'm, I was from San Antonio. I had to leave my, the high school for my junior year. Lost all school spirit. And I remember I met some guy and he, he got me to join the wrestling team. And I remember I, I never felt so much like uh, joy within being a part of something with school. I mean, I, in, in San Antonio, for my, the earlier years, I was always just... I, I didn't want to have anything to do with school. I, I just wanted to uh, drink, do drugs, steal, get into fights. That's, that's all I wanted to do. And none of that I could do at school. And so when I, when I joined the wrestling team, I remember I was able to get like this new sense of aggression out and it was legal. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. I could just literally beat up another guy and get patted on the back for it. It was awesome. I, I, I never thought it, was, it would be something so, so liberating. And what was great was that I was actually really good at it. I remember it, the, the wrestling team was, uh, when, the year that I was there, we went to state. It was a really good team. Uh, those, a lot of those guys were in wrestling their whole lives, and this was my first time trying it. And I remember I was able to get on uh, the varsity spot the, the uh, first try. And I was like, man, I, I just felt so good within myself. And I would, it, when it came to practice, I would tear those guys up. I felt, uh, I, I was like just on top of the world with confidence within myself. I felt so good. And I remember the very first match I had, I was, I was psyched. I was ready to go. And I literally, there, there's certain moves in wrestling that literally just demoralize a, a human being. <laughs> there's one move called the cradle. And it's where you literally hold someone by their head and leg in a cradling position to where they look like this. And it's just embarrassing to be put in that kind of position. And I remember I had this guy in the cradle. I was already dominating. I was like, this is it. My first match. I'm going to, I'm about to make this, uh, get one, two, three. This guy's going to tap out. Uh, I, I win. And in that, those few seconds is like time slowed down and all of a sudden, I had this like eerie voice inside my head that said, do you really think that you're going to be able to win your first match? 
And I remember it was the weirdest feeling because I went from being on top of the world to feeling so insecure, so afraid, so anxious, thinking that, well, how am I going to do this? There's no way I could really win in a matter of milliseconds. Complete turnaround. And just like that, this dude that I was dominating the whole time somehow flipped me on my back. I was winning the entire time. And all of a sudden, the ref decides to count super fast. <laughs> I felt like those three seconds were taking forever. As soon as I'm on my back, I'm like, what do you think? And I lost. And from that moment forward, I had, that I had just developed in that short couple seconds, I developed such an, uh, a fear of failure, such an anxiety even of just spotlight that I, I, it, it literally dwelled in my heart, made me so afraid and anxious to do anything. This is all before I gave my life to Christ. And as far as depression, I remember some attributing factors to it was feeling so isolated from friends and family, feeling alone, having, uh, not feeling like I could relate to my family, my parents, my brothers or sisters, feeling like I was just uh, the isolated one, the one left out. And then even when it came to friends and, and moving forward, even moving away from the friends I thought I had, all this isolation, all, this, all these feelings of rejection. And the way that I coped then was drug abuse, crime, alcohol, um, even, even just the desire to be a part of a gang. I mean, I, you, you, a lot of people think like, how, why do people want that? A lot of people, it's hard to understand. Why would you want to be a part of a gang? But the truth is, we, there's so many people that feel so isolated and so uninvolved. I mean, how many times has someone tried to go to a, a, just a normal church, a traditional church, and they can't even dress the way they normally dress? As soon as they go in, it's like, oh, you're not accepted here like that. When, it goes to, when they go to school, oh, you can't talk like that. You can't dress like that. Pick up your pants. That's not how we behave here. Not accepted. You go home. Oh, who do you think you are? You can't run around like that. You can't dress like that here. Not in my house. Rejected. And all of a sudden, there's this random group of people that you just find. And not only do they accept you, but they empower you. So, yeah, you can be on this team. You can be a part of this gang. Yeah, you can make a difference. Man, it, it, it makes you feel alive. And for the first time, you feel like you have a glimpse of what it's like to have some type of control in your life. And I remember this is all before I gave my life to Christ. And the moment I did give my life to Christ, those monsters that were within me still stayed. It's a different way. I, I had this... This, this new love and this new peace in my heart. And yet it was like these monsters within me that were trying to fight against what, this, new, this new thing that I found. And I, after I gave my life to Christ, I, I, I had my fear of failure, my fear of not being enough in, in life transferred to not being enough in church. Not being enough for God. I had this performance-based love thinking, how could I, I, I mess up so much, how can I please God the way that I am? 
not fitting in at church, always finding out that I was doing something wrong, that I said something wrong, that I, I didn't even know I wasn't supposed to listen to that. I didn't even know that we weren't supposed to dance at a quinceanera. I didn't know that. All these feelings of, of feeling rejected and knowing that I, uh, that I was not enough. And that fear of not fitting in. And then the isolation and rejection goes hand in hand with it. And with no vices to handle yourself, you start going into even deeper thoughts to, when, when you go through depression. Other people get to just smoke a doobie. I have a couple shots, like, okay, I can make it tonight. But now you're trying to walk this new walk, say, I'm trying to do right with God, and I'm trying to, you know, get rid of some of the vices in my life. And then when depression hits, what do you have? And there's so many Christians in church that are led to these suicidal thoughts. You know, just, just this past week, there was a pastor, 30 years old, healthy, had an amazing, beautiful family, was a, a pastor at uh, this big church. The, the congregation loved him. And he committed suicide this last week. And it, it literally brought a lot of conversation to people because people were literally surprised. Couldn't believe it. Just out of nowhere. And, and that, this last month, he even gave a message about anxiety and depression. And then at the end of the month, he attempted suicide. The church put out a Facebook post like saying, please pray for our pastor. All these people praying for their pastor. And then that, the night that they, that they had a prayer vigil, he died. It, it shocked. It shocked churches. It shocked people. It shocked me. And to know that the, this man was, was really doing the right things. He was involved with his church. He's connected. They had a good marriage. And yet he had such this isolated feeling of anxiety and depression that, that got, so, got so far where he felt like no one could understand it, that he couldn't talk about it. That was just something that he had to fix on his own to the point where it, it took so much of him that he ended up taking his life. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a terrible thing. And, and it's so, it's sad. It, it, I mean, it hurts my heart to know that. And it, it's, I, I was going to actually talk about something completely different this first week, but I really felt like this was a topic that we needed to start with. Because there's so many people in church, outside of church, that deal with anxiety and depression, but we're all just trying to handle it on our own. Now, I remember before I gave my life to Christ, I, I, have, I have scars all over my body where I used to cut myself because of that depression, that anxiety. And now after I give my life to Christ, it's like that, I, I don't even know why it provided some type of false relief. But now there's, there's times for me even now where I've been so stressed out, so, so anxious, not knowing what to do. And I start thinking back to those old things I used to do, my old habits. But now it's like, oh man, I, I can't do that. I'm a pastor. <laughs> what am I supposed to do now? Who do I talk to? And... It's important as we move forward, today's title is Anxious and Depressed. It's important as we move forward that we talk about these things. And so 
We're, we're going to have a, a lot of scriptures today. And there are going to be a lot of scriptures that are like those cool scriptures that you'd want to put on a coffee mug. <laughs> we're going to talk about some practical stuff to, to do to help. And what I want to say right now is that, that anxiety and depression is not a one conversation fixer. Do y'all dig what I'm saying? It's not something that you should feel like, okay, I should be fixed now. I should never struggle with this again. It's not like that. It's a journey that you walk. And even though you may think that this is just a, a cold, dark thing that you have just by yourself and that it can never be something you share with someone else, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be extra transparent because that's one of our core values is that victory happens with transparency. And I want you guys to know that me being a church planter, me being a pastor, that, that I am not... I'm not, uh, I am just as vulnerable as anybody else. And I say that to let you know that, that these things attack everyone. And the common thing that you feel when you're going through it is that you're the only one. Y'all dig what I'm saying? And I remember one of the, if I could share one of the last moments that the last time that I felt so anxious and so depressed where I was having like scary suicidal thoughts to where I was, I was not just thinking about it, but I was fantasizing about it. I started thinking about how to do it, which way I would do it. What, what would happen afterwards? Trying to, I was thinking, trying to think it all the way through and trying to convince myself after thinking about it and fantasizing it, imagining what it would be like to have my last breath. And the only way that I was able to make it just a little bit longer was when I finally told my wife about it. And I was so afraid to tell her, not knowing what she would say. I didn't know she'd be mad at me, upset at me, telling me, you can't think that. But she was so compassionate, so understanding, so patient, so loving, and it helped me to make it through that time. And I remember even just, I was a youth pastor. There's times that the only reason I would go to church was because I was preaching that night. I was felt so anxious. I felt like I didn't belong at all with church. You ever feel like that at church before? You don't, that you're the one person that doesn't belong there. Everyone else gets along and you feel like you're the only one that doesn't fit in that puzzle. Feels like you're just being jammed in and it's, it hurts even trying to fit in there. I felt like that too. And I remember getting to a point where even just on the way to church, I'd start getting so anxious. I would have to control myself because I'd start having a panic attack. All this pressure of trying to be the, uh, uh, the perfect person. Isn't that what we feel like at church? Like we have to be the, a better person than we really are, right? We have to be the super holy person than, rather than what we really are. We have to act like we didn't just have a fight with our spouse. We have to act like everything's perfect at home. I remember feeling so anxious and my wife... She's, she is such an amazing person. There'd be times where I, I would just, I couldn't even breathe. I, and I'd try to control myself. And my, I was trying to suppress it the most I could. Thinking I just need to have self-control. I just need to suppress. I just need, I need to handle myself. To where my body started twitching. My body started having a, a reaction to the emotions I was trying to hold down. And it's so unhealthy to try to keep all that stuff in. And I remember one of the last moments, this is, 
Before, uh, this is the last one I'm going to share before we officially get into the message. I remember we were about to have this huge lock-in. A lock-in is one of the most uh, tiring things you could ever do for a youth group. It's, it's exasperating. It took me weeks to plan out, days to prepare, even at the church. We turned the entire church into like this club. It was amazing. Moved all 500 chairs out so that we could play basketball, volleyball, and all kinds of stuff inside. A lot of work. And the night that we're, that we're going to start the lock-in, it was such an awesome event because we would use this awesome time of fun to invite uh, about 100 kids showed up. And those kids that were just in, you know, in the area, they didn't even go to our church, but they were going to come to this event. And so it's like a big deal, a lot of pressure. Like this, is gonna be the, this might be the only message that one of these kids hears about Jesus Christ. So much pressure. And you have this, this false idea that you have to be a perfect Christian to share your faith. You have to be perfect to be able to make a difference in somebody else's life. A lot of times we think, well, how could I help somebody else if I'm so messed up? And I remember that. I, I had just got off work. I had to go change and get ready for, to preach at the lock-in and to stay up for another uh, 24 hours. And I, I got so anxious and I started feeling like such a failure, such, like I was not enough, not ready to do anything. Now, it can't be me. I can't do this. I'm not the one. I can handle this anxiety and depression on my own. I, I just, but I can't do this. And I remember I, I, there's a point where I got to my knees and I was just yelling because I was the only one home so I could yell. And no one would have to know I was messed up. And I remember just feeling so frantic as anxiety and depression was starting to take over. Starting to, my judgment was impaired. And I remember going into the kitchen and just getting a, a, one of our big knives and just holding it to my arm as a youth pastor about to preach a sermon and just yelling and asking God, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I? And I remember just breathing really heavily, just feeling all this pressure, every part of my body getting stiff. As I, as I pushed the knife further and further in my, my arm, and all I had to do was just move it to the side. And I remember I just, all of a sudden I just dropped everything. And I just felt like God whispered to me, just get back up. I thought, God, how am I supposed to go to this lock-in, to this youth group and give a message now? And I just heard a whisper again, just get back up. So I just got back up. Try to act like that didn't just happen. Finished doing my hair. And I went to preach at that lock-in. No one knew. Showed up like, hey guys, what's going on? I acted like I was the, the happiest person there. And I remember I gave a message about suicide. We had a huge altar call. Dozens of kids came and gave their life to Christ. And I remember the part that really moved me the most was... One young girl that came up to me, she was crying. I was praying for her and she just hugged me and she said, I was going to commit suicide this weekend. But my, one of my friends kept inviting me to, to come to this. And so I told myself I would go to this and afterwards I would kill myself. But I'm not going to do that anymore. I gave my life to Christ. I remember it moved me so much and opened my eyes so much of how many people really struggle with depression and anxiety. And people are literally on the brink 
People are so close to just doing it, finally. They're this close. And we don't even know. We don't even realize. So, now getting into today's message, I want to read you all this verse in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 34. It says, this is Jesus talking. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows your needs. Stop there. I want you to think for a second. Who is he talking to? The disciples. People that are already following after God. And so what he's saying is that the very believers that he's he's talking to are going through what he's talking about. Saying, don't worry, guys. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. And so what he's giving us is a goal to be at a point where we don't have, where we don't let our thoughts wander into so much worry where it controls our lives. But it doesn't mean we fail if we're not there yet. He's talking to the disciples. Y'all dig what I'm saying? And then it goes on to say, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. That's usually where that verse stops. And we think, okay, we just need to focus on God and everything will be okay. Everything will be peachy. Our lives will be perfect. We just focus on God first. And then the, that's usually where the sermon, the verses stop and we go on to the preaching. But let's read the verses after that says, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Jesus is so sympathetic to us. He's saying, yes, the kingdom of God, the gospel must be preached. And on the side note, he's saying like, but look, I understand. Your worry for today is enough. You already got it bad enough. Don't fantasize about how bad tomorrow is going to be. Isn't that what anxiety and depression does? It's a a fantasy of how bad it's going to get, how much worse it's going to get. And Jesus is just saying, hey, look, let's we're not there yet. Let's just take today. Today already has enough for us to worry about. We'll get tomorrow when we get there. We'll take it one day at a time. Today, we're going to talk about lies, labels and loneliness. Lies that we believe about anxiety, depression, the labels that we give ourselves, and the loneliness that dwells on us. It comes hand in hand with anxiety and depression. Start on off in lies. Lies. Look at your neighbor and say liar. <laughs> Liars. Who here has never told a lie? That would be a lie, right? Ah, quick, quick on your feet. You know, have you noticed that a lot of like popular sayings we have are really not true? Very like lies that we believe. Think about the most popular Disney saying, follow your heart. Can you picture Mickey saying that? Follow your heart. Woohoo! Follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Everything will be okay. 
Yet the Bible tells us our heart is, is deceitfully wicked. <laughs> that our own hearts will deceive us. That we'll, How many of you have messed up something yourself in life? <laughs> you thought it was a, what you wanted to do and then you realize, man, I really screwed that up for myself. Your heart is deceitful. It's wicked. I'm not saying you're wicked. It's just our heart can trick us. Because really, we get confused with our hearts with our desire for pleasure. And we believe lies like that all the time. I remember hearing a lie a couple years ago. And I remember I met someone's, uh, I met a a friend of a pastor that I knew. It's like a ministry friend of his. And you know, one thing that, can I just be straight up? I think everyone can identify with this a little bit. The best advice that, that you can get is advice that's asked for, right? When, it, when do you get the most unsolicited advice when you're about to get married or have kids, right? Or go to school, right? When you're about to graduate, everyone knows exactly what you should do, but you never ask them. And so this guy started giving me unsolicited advice and I just, you know, I learned how to behave in church. I was like, okay, I got to put a smile on and act like I really care about what he's saying. Okay. And I remember one of the things he told me as a min- one minister to another. He's telling me as advice for a youth pastor is he said, one thing you got to do is you have to guard yourself. We, he knew. He said, we as ministers, we're not perfect. We make mistakes just like everybody else. But we just have to guard that. And some people say, fake it till you make it. But I say, faith it till you make it. And at that point, I was like, Ugh, cringe. Obscenity, obscenity in my mind. And I just did not like that saying. I believe in, I, hey, I believe in faking it till you make it. I do. I think that a lot of us, if we would just act like we know what we're doing, we'd be surprised at how successful we are. But this idea that he was saying is, is faith it till you make it was this idea that you can be holier than thou. Make everybody else think that you're perfect. Make everyone else think that your Instagram is real. That all those happy highlights is all that you get all day. When he, the way he described it, it did not sit with me. And that's actually what helped inspire one of our core values, that victory happens with transparency. Because what I've found is that so many people's addictions, so many people's anxiety and depression go unresolved because of people making us believe that we can just act like everything's okay. Just faith it till you make it. But see, depression, anxiety, addictions, those things, you know what they're like? They're like mold. If you just leave it in the dark, it'll continue to grow. And it'll fester, it'll stink, and it'll be a silent killer in your soul. We can't just faith it till you make it. We got to talk about it. No matter how unpleasant it is. no, No matter how untraditional it may be. Isn't it weird that we talk about some of the ugliest parts of our lives with everybody except our family and at church? We can talk to a friend, 
You can talk to someone on Xbox Live. You don't even know them. You can just put it on Facebook as like a, act like it's a quote for someone else, but you're really just trying to express how, how ugly you feel inside. But the one place that you won't talk about it is with your own family and at church. Those are the two spots where we need to be real. I think it's long enough that the church has been a show. Isn't it time for the show to be over? Isn't it time to have the rawness and realness of church to where it's not just shining your shoes and spending more time in getting dressed and ready, doing your hair, spending more time doing that than you actually are praying? Spend more time getting ready for Sunday service than you actually spend talking to another person at church? Don't y'all think that that time should be over now? That the show should end? And that we should actually have a real church, the real service, experiencing the real God. If we, if we want that, then that means we're going to have to talk about the things we really go through. Y'all dig what I'm saying? Yes. Faith it till you make it. False image, false perfection, this idea of being right instead of being real. It's a lie. It's a lie that we believe. The, the next lie is I can handle this on my own. I can handle this anxiety on my own. What this lie is, is isolation and seclusion. Isolation and seclusion. I can handle this on my own. And it's funny that this lie that we believe, that we could just deal with it on our own, it's just like I said, it's that it only allows it to fester into, that, into something so much worse. And it goes hand in hand with this next lie, which is, I can't do this. Isn't that kind of funny? That anxiety and depression says that you can handle it all on your own. But when it comes to actually take, taking like a positive step, everything in you yells out, no, I can't do this. It, maybe it's going to a counseling session and all of a sudden, you're like, I can't do this. Maybe it's finally telling somebody else and he's all of a sudden, I can't do this. I can't. But then you also believe the lie that you can handle it on your own when you know that you can't. Isn't that, don't y'all see the contradictory there? I can't be transparent. I can't be open. But I can handle all this junk in my life that's been taking control of me for the last several years. I can't do this as a fear of failure and spotlight. You know, that, that fear that, that just burns in our chest, that fear that it's almost like you feel it all across from shoulder to shoulder, and it's just yelling at you, you can't do this. You can't. You can't take that new job. You won't be able to do it. You won't be able to handle it. You, won't, you can't go to that school. You, you won't be able to pass. You can't get married. Look at you. you. You can't handle yourself. How could you handle a marriage? You can't have kids. How could you do that? All this fear, failure, just sets on you and stops you from trying. You know, I want to I read this verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It's talking about faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And it's, oh, I think I accidentally wrote Philippians. Go ahead and put it on the screen. It says that faith 
it says that faith shows the reality of what we hope for is the evidence of things that we cannot see. My bad. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for is the evidence of the things we cannot see. Doesn't that sound a lot like fear? It's the the evidence of what we cannot see. It's the things that we hope for. The reality of what we hope for. Let's change it around. Fear shows us reality of what we fear of. It is the evidence of the things that we cannot see. While faith shows us the reality of what we hope for, not fear, is the evidence of what we cannot see. See, the difference between fear and faith is that they're actually exactly the same. The only difference is fear expects the worst while faith expects the best. Think about tomorrow. Are you a future teller? If you you are, tell me the lottery for tomorrow. Anyone that tells me they're a fortune teller, I wonder why they're not rich. Go, go to a, a, a horse race or something. Where you're, doing, you're not doing enough just sitting in that, that little house reading people's fortunes to have your own. See, we don't know the future. We don't know what tomorrow's going to happen. I remember one day I was so stressed out about money. I was freaking out. We were about to move to San Antonio. And I was thinking, God, what the heck? What are we going to do? So afraid. And God told me, if someone were to just write you a check for $10,000, would you be so stressed out about this one thing today if you were going to get that tomorrow? I'd be like, of course not. I'd be over thrilled. I wouldn't even, I'd be happier than can be. I'd be, this would be the best day ever. So, well, then you, why are you expecting the worst to happen instead of the best? And the next day, someone wrote me a check for, no, I'm just kidding. That would be awesome, though, right? <laughs> but it helped me get through that day and thinking, you know what? Anything could happen tomorrow. Why am I just so set on fear? Why not, why not expect something better? It, it's something that I had to literally change and make an effort to in my head. And I want you to think about these lies. And I want you, let's, let's just be real within ourselves. I've experienced this too. I believed all of these lies. But can't we really look at those moments when we're by ourselves and look back and see that we over-dramatize things in our heads, in our minds? We over-dramatize our childhood too. We've all had crappy childhoods. And we know that, but it's like when that anxiety and depression happens, all of a sudden it's like it's multiplied. Before you were fine. You thought it was funny. You'd make jokes about your childhood. And all of a sudden now it's like you can't get out of bed. See, what anxiety and depression does, it twists normal things into over-dramatized things. And we have to understand that that's how it works in our minds and in our, in our hearts. And that we have to identify that and know that we're not just so messed up. That that's just what those things do in us. Y'all dig what I'm saying? When you can identify it, you can help stop it saying like, no, I don't want to go back there. Let's talk about labels. Look at your neighbor and say label. Label, label. Labels. You will only live out the labels that you give yourself. 
You will live out the labels that you give yourself. Everyone here has a name tag. It labels you. I'm labeled Homer. Homero in Spanish, in Espanol, for those of you who hablas Espanol. It's Homer, just like the Simpsons. Who's the Simpsons? He's the worst character there is to be named Homer. Why not start with the Iliad? Homer like the Iliad, the great poet. Homer like that movie that Jake Gyllenhaal played in where he shot a rocket into space or something. So many Homers. Why do you say Homer like the Simpsons? That's the worst one. See, sometimes we label ourselves the worst one. Put the worst label on ourselves because... The truth is, we know ourselves better than anybody else. We know all the things that we mess up on. We, we know all of our shortcomings. We know all of our vices. We know all of our thoughts. So we, we give ourselves the shortest end of the stick. We, we pity ourselves. My wife jokes with me sometimes if I'm in a bad mood. I, I started it, to be honest. But now she throws it back at me. That was her... Making that a uh, sly laugh in the back. Huh. And whenever one of us is feeling like real down in the dumps, I remember one day I went to her and said, hey, I was going to go to the store later. Do you want me to get any streamers? Looks up at me. Streamers for what? So for the pity party that you're having. <laughs> it's Okay. She's told it back to me plenty of times. <laughs> but see, we, we throw the biggest party in our heads of pity for ourselves. And we allow those labels that we make for ourselves to control us. I'm an anxious person. I'm just depressed. I'm a depressed person. I'm an angry person. That's a really popular one with guys. I'm just an angry person. As if like, in our minds, in our subconscious, that's what we identify as being a man, as an angry man. Maybe you can look back and look through that, all the influences of movies and, and maybe male figures in your life that you notice that they were always angry, so that's what you subconsciously think as a man, so you label yourself a negative influence of being angry. Could that be possible? But we put these negative things on ourselves rather than saying, I'm a very caring person. I'm a very happy person. I mean... What if you can control the labels that you, you have for yourself? And what kind of person do you really want to be? Do you want to be a person that makes a difference? Do you want to be a person that is honest? I mean, think about the attributes that you'd really want for yourself to label yourself as. Why not label yourself those, those good things and then just be that? I know that's a lot easier said than done, but... If we do that for the negative, can it be possible for the positive? Y'all see what I'm saying? Again, I'm not saying that this is a switch overnight. But if, what if we were actively working on trying to, to be that better person that we want to be in our minds? Again, not being perfect, not being this super, super saint. But just the simple stuff. Like, I want to I be a person that shows love to others. That's a simple one. That doesn't even like really necessarily go into like morality, right? So I could handle that. I could, I could be loving to somebody, a, another human being. I mean, I love a puppy. Like, 
I guess I could show that same love to a human being, right? Some of you are like, I hate puppies. I hate all the puppies in the whole world. Nacho Libre reference. Um, tough crowd, tough crowd. What about the, the labels others give you? You become what you allow yourself to believe about the labels others have given you. You still think back to that one teacher in high school that told you you were a loser? Still think back to that parent that told you that you're never going to make it? And see, we often meet the expectations of others. When someone says, you're, you're, you're going to be nothing but a, a thug, all of a sudden, you, that's all you want to be like, fine, I'll show them wrong by doing that. We become those labels that other people have given us. Why not liberate yourself? Why not have a little bit of freedom and step back and say, you know what, those people, they don't know what they're talking about. I remember one time I had a conversation when we first moved here and someone told me, their advice to me was quit the church. This is a huge mistake. Stop what you're doing and go backwards. Just go and serve at a local church. Church planting is not for you. And I remember everything in me was like, wow, like all my fears and doubts expressed by another human. How great. How awesome is that to hear all of that expressed to me by another human voice? I was getting tired of just hearing it from myself. And I remember there's part of me that wanted to just stay in that label. I'm not qualified. I'm not educated enough to do this. I can't do this. And I had to be transparent of how I felt and talk to somebody else for them to say, oh, no, man. You don't have to live up to that label. You, you, can, you, you got this. You can do this. Isn't that what we need sometimes? Just someone to pick us up off the dirt after someone pushed us down? How can we do that if we're not transparent with one another? If no one really knows how you're feeling, how can anybody help you? Y'all dig what I'm saying? Someone say labels. Labels. It's an easy word to say. <laughs> Labels will only limit you. Even, uh, let me just say, like this, I'm telling you this, this helped me. I've felt anxious, I've been anxious, I've been depressed, I've had all that stuff too. And I remember the moment that I finally got out of it, to where I stopped having panic attacks, to where I stopped not being able to control my body from freaking out, to having suicidal thoughts, all that, all that jazz. When I finally came out of it, life happens, and it's so easy to slip back into it because those la- those, that's what those labels do is they cast ropes around you so that whenever you start feeling good again, they can pull you back. And all of a sudden you start thinking, well, that's what I am anyway. If you get rid of those labels, I remember a moment where I was just, I started feeling those same feelings again and I remembered how, how horrible it feels to be anxious and depressed. And I remember thinking, I, I don't want to go back. I can't. I can't handle that again. I won't make it through another season like that. And I had to throw off those labels and say, no, that's not who I am anymore. I used to punch walls all the time when I was a kid. Anyone do that? Yeah, come on. Represent. <laughs> Represent all those with a lack of self-control. <laughs> whoop, whoop. And I remember I, my, my, I got like tore up hands. And I remember I get so angry. I just couldn't control myself. I just have to punch the next thing next to me. 
And I remember breaking my hand so many times. I got, I had a, and I didn't have health insurance. That's the worst thing when you punch walls without health insurance. It's your own demise. You're just hurting yourself. It's one thing to go to the doctor, like, yeah, fix it, doc. I did it again. Another thing, you're like, shoot, like, I don't know what to do. How am I gonna fix my hand? I got really good at making my own splints. Like, I literally like had to like, all right, let's ice it here. It's gonna be all right. Take some rest. Don't use it for a couple days. Take the splint off in about two weeks. <laughs> and see, fast forward to when we moved here. I'll be honest again. Again, super transparent. There's one day where my old self rose up. Y'all know the old guy? It's like the stuff you used to do. Like, I don't do that anymore, but sometimes it just, he gets a hold of me. And I remember it was something so stupid, so dumb. It was a financial thing. Like one of our credit cards got a late fee. But we were like, when, it's one thing to get a late fee, but another thing when you get a late fee when you're strapped, it's like when you're broke, it's like, God, like, no! It's like seeing a, like seeing a car crash. I'm like, ah! No! And I remember I got up and I was so mad. And I just, I let the, I let the refrigerator know how mad I was. This is after we planted the church. And I remember just, I did it, and I really messed up my hand. I was, like, completely embarrassed, ashamed. Like, my, my, my hand was, like, definitely broken. I was like, shoot. Like, how am I going to hide this? It, now there's this. And let me just say that there was, it was a good dent in that refrigerator. He's never going to talk to me like that again. What was even dumber is that afterwards... We were able to get the late fee taken off, so <laughs> there's no problem anymore. I made an irreversible decision. Broke my hand. Now our refrigerator looks even uglier. And it was for something that was reversible. See, when it comes to a lot of the decisions that we make, when we, when we leave these labels on ourselves... We make irreversible decisions for things that are temporary. Suicide is a permanent decision for something that's temporary. Let me read y'all Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. And it says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Now, let's stop right there. It's talking about worry, right? What, how not to worry. And, and again, I'm not saying that these things are like quick fixes at all. In fact, a lot of these things are very difficult to do. But even for myself, and I'm just saying from my experience, remember, no, no one else can share in your story. Some of the things that work for me may not work for you, but I'm sharing them to try to help. Y'all dig what I'm saying? And when it says here to instead pray about everything, tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. I mean, like think about like how the idea of prayer, like, like really when we think about prayer, we almost think like it's this white knuckled approach in church. Like just, just pray it away. Just pray the anxiety away. Just pray the depression away. But that's not what this verse is saying. He's saying like, don't just 
It's not going to be fixed overnight. He's saying this will help you get through the night. I'll dig what I'm saying. Thankfulness literally like forces depression away. I'm telling you, I've, I've had it myself. Times where so bogged down, so stressed out, and I start just going back through and being grateful for what I had. Even this, this last month, God was just really ministering to me. So we were, you know, uh, it, like the beginning of this month, we had so many changes that, that were scary for our family. A lot of scary changes. And like I knew that if it was a year ago and these changes would have happened, I would have flipped. I wouldn't have been able to take it. But God just in so many ways has made me stronger today than where I was a year ago, five months ago. And I remember I, I, instead of just thinking about what we didn't have right now, all the, all the things that went wrong right now, I started just, it, it was like serendipitous, you know. I, I started thinking about before I gave my life to Christ. And I started thinking about the times where even just this last weekend, we're, you know, those things that you joke about that are kind of sad, but you joke about them because it's like kind of funny with your childhood. You know, it's like, yeah, like my mom used to keep the keys in the freezer and beat me with them. <laughs> it's like, it's funny to talk about now, but like, then like another, like another day of the week, it's like, my mom used to do that to me. Why would you do that to me? And I remember we're, I had one of those moments and I used to, I used to steal food to eat because I, I, I pretty much like didn't want to be at home because I didn't feel I felt rejected, isolated, all that. And I, I'd rather be with a bunch of gang members and people that didn't have families and be with my own family. And I proved something. I proved that I could make it as a homeless person. I proved it. I was like, all right, I made it. I've arrived. I could do it. And one of the things I would have to do to get some food I'll go to the local HEB, God bless HEB, and I'll steal just a bunch of cans of ravioli. I got really good at stealing. I would wear this big jacket, and I learned a way to just put the, it was like the scrunchie jacket on the wrist, and it was thick, it was big enough to where I could just move my fingers like that and slip anything up the sleeve, and it was just like, you know, con man status. I could just swoop. Some say swoop. That's how easy it was to steal. And one time, I was, I was going for a big score. The big one. I was like, I'm, like, I need to eat. Like, I'm tired of having to go every day for food. I'm going to start. I need to start manning up. I need some maturity. I'm going to prepare a week, you know, a couple days of food. I'm tired of having to go back here every day. So I was getting eight cans of ravioli that day. And one sitting, one score. It's filling up with sleeves, with ja- my jacket sleeves. And I have a suspicion that HEB was starting to catch on to me. Because I start seeing police officers going back and forth the aisle. <laughs> I start getting nervous, freaking out a little bit. And one of those guys came right next to me and was looking at the aisle behind me. Maybe it was just coincidence, I don't know. But at that very moment, I made the wrong move. Two cans like fell out of my jacket onto the floor. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> Except then I wasn't saved. I didn't say shoot in my mind. And... I remember I couldn't move because if I moved anymore, more cans would... It would have been like a movie scenario where a bunch of cans start falling out. And so I was just there stuck because I couldn't readjust myself because this guy was right behind me and like cans fell and it's like, why aren't you going to pick that up? <laughs> so I still made it out. I grabbed some plastic forks 
on my way out at the deli because I was tired of eating canned ravioli with mechanical pencils as chopsticks. And I remember I was thinking about that the other day, right at the point where I started thinking how, how many bills I couldn't pay, all the things I was stressed out about. And just thinking about, man, I'm, now I have a chair to sit at when I eat. I have a table to eat at. I have utensils to eat with. And I just, I just started crying. I was just so great. It's just like gratefulness started coming out. And the depression that was trying to settle in on me fled. It left. Gratefulness is a powerful tool. Let's finish that verse. Then you will experience God's peace. Don't y'all want God's peace? You know what God's peace looks like? It looks like a spiritual gun, like from Dragon Ball Z or something. And it points it right at the devil's face and say, back up. And I'm like, man, he was a little bit hood. <laughs> That's what I think about when I read God's peace. I just imagine the spiritual gun that, that shoots people with peace. And it just protects you and blesses you. Which exceeds anything you understand. His peace will guard your hearts. See what I'm saying? <laughs> it will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. The final thing we're talking about is loneliness. Look at your neighbor and say, lonely? Wow. Saw some puppy dog eyes back there. Lonely? Loneliness? Gonna talk, let, what's the culprit of loneliness? See, one culprit that causes loneliness to grow is when you leave yourself lonely. Loneliness left in the dark will only keep you lonely. What's one, of the, what's one of the most common things that we do when we're lonely? We isolate ourselves. We don't go to the party. We don't go to church. We don't do anything. We just lay in bed. And watch the same episodes on Netflix over and over and over. So at the end of the day, we just feel like we're these worthless sloths. that only feel lonely and with no purpose. All I'm good for is watching The Office seven times a day. All, that's all I can do. I can't even find a new show. That's how lonely I am. All I have is Jim and, and Pam and Dwight. Michael even left me. I don't want Robert California. Andy should just be Andy. Stop being like Michael. It doesn't work. I like you better as a nice guy. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Pam, why would you just, just trust Jim? <laughs> Stop doing that. See, we get so lonely and we leave ourselves there. We only allow that loneliness to grow more and more. You will, you will always feel more lonely if you allow yourself to stay isolated. The, we're talking about the culprit, right? Let's, look, let's talk about the cure. The cure to loneliness, community. You, you literally have to force yourself to be a part of a community. Because loneliness will tell you that you never fit in. Loneliness will tell you that it will never work. Loneliness will tell you that everyone judges you. Loneliness will tell you that you're not accepted. Loneliness will only lie to you that you're rejected. you got to force past those feelings and involve yourself with community. 
Community gives you life again. Make, it gives that, just that lifeblood to you again. And what do you need with community? Transparency. Someone pump your fist like that and say transparency. That's right. Something to be aggressive about. Transparency isn't easy. Is it? Someone say no. It's not. It wasn't even easy for you to say that, see? Transparency is difficult. How was your weekend? It was all right. It was good. And you're just having flashbacks to crying in the corner. Oh, my day has been good. God is good all the time. When do you ever talk to someone and like, hey, how was your day? He's like, you know, I actually had a lot of suicidal thoughts over the weekend. I was able to drown them out by going on a drinking binge. And I made it here today, so I, God is good. <laughs> like, when do you ever just be honest with how you're really feeling about something? Oh, I just started, a, it started off good, but then I started having thoughts I didn't belong at church and that I didn't fit in. And that I'm the only one here that still struggles with stuff. It's kind of depressing, felt really anxious about coming, almost didn't come, but came anyway. What about you? Did you get a donut yet? (laughs) Yeah, we all have those kinds of thoughts, right? But we think we're the only one. See, we need to be transparent with one another, because if we don't, if we don't make the step to be transparent with someone, someone else is going to feel like they have to put on a mask too. If, If we don't collectively work as a community to trust each other, to be transparent with one another, the next person that comes is going to feel like they're going to have to just put on this fake mask that everything's hunky-dory, A-OK, until the day that they can't handle it anymore and they just never go back to church again and go back to isolating themselves, uninvolving themselves with community. Y'all dig what I'm saying? Some say transparency. These kids know what I'm talking about. They're saying amen, running up to the altar, ready to give their lives to Jesus. You know, this is one that people don't expect. This is really something that's powerful, and it's serving. Serving. See, transparency gives you breath again. Have you ever felt so afraid to tell someone something, but you finally said it, and you're like, ah, so glad I got that off my chest. All that person did was listen to you. And it's like, man, thank you so much. Here's $10. All right? It, it feels so good you can breathe again. Community gives you life again. Well, serving gives you purpose again. See, that's why a lot of us slip into that depression because we feel like we don't have purpose, that we don't make a difference, that we're just aimlessly wandering through the earth waiting to be killed. We're just lifeless bodies that, that don't matter. But when you serve, especially in your local church, it, it gives you purpose again to where you know that you're making a difference. That's why when, when people become parents, they immediately feel like their purpose is born. Like they, oh, I know what I'm here for, this child. It, it's purpose, serving uh, at church, serving in the community, it just gives you purpose and it makes you feel that motivation again. That's why when you hate your job, it's so hard for you to be motivated because you don't feel like it's purposeful. But when you realize that your position at your job does have a purpose, now you're just not there to fill a seat, it makes you like your job. Have you noticed that? It's like, wow, like I actually mean something to the company. It gives purpose. But here's the most 
the powerful thing, and again, I'm not one to say, pray something away and just never, you never have to talk about it again. But prayer gives you power again. Prayer gives you power again. I remember in a time that I was so, that, that time I was talking about at the beginning of this message. And I was feeling so down, so low, I couldn't get out of bed. It felt like just all this pressure on my chest, all this anxiety, too scared to go to church, too scared to tell anybody. And I remember I went, uh, I drove all the way to San Antonio to find an anonymous stranger at a church and set up a prayer, this prayer counseling session. And my wife set up, helped me. And it was just this, this prayer session where it's like this prayer counseling. And I remember just being able to sit there Get everything off my chest. Being able to be transparent about everything that I was going through with these random strangers. And then just praying about it. And I remember I literally, like their sessions usually take just a couple hours. Like, or not even a couple hours, like one or two. We got there at 6, left there at like 10.30. They're like, dang, this guy really did have some junk on his He really did have some stuff he was going through. Took me four and a half hours to get through all that stuff. And I didn't even finish. They're like, well, you know, you're always welcome to come back and... That it kicked me out of there. And I was like, yeah, and another thing. <laughs> but I remember them praying for me, praying with me, knowing that I wasn't being judged. Just being able to speak freely. I felt so liberated, so free, and so empowered, knowing that those, those prayers just empowered my soul. And that was the first time prayer empowered me. The second time was when I started praying for myself. And when I say praying for myself, I don't mean praying for myself. I meant praying like in myself, if that makes sense. I believe that the more that we pray for others, the less we worry about ourselves. If you let let your mind just focus on all the problems you have within yourself, you'll never get to praying for someone else. That that verse we read at the beginning said, seek the kingdom above all else and all all other things will fall into place, right? Well, in our prayer life, and I've experienced this firsthand. I'm being like transparent with you in my experiences. When I used to pray, woe is me. I'm so messed up. Help me to be a better Christian. Help me to do this. Oh, Eeyore, where's my tail? I don't know what to do. And I just got allowed myself to sink deeper and deeper into how pitiful I was. I never felt any better in my prayer life. But the moment that I started praying for others instead, the kingdom of God is about others, Right? I remember I felt so much more empowered at the end of it. It doesn't make sense. I'm praying for them, but I feel better. And, and I'm telling you, it's just like a supernatural thing. Where God, like in, The Holy Spirit just puts a supernatural peace around you when, when you make those sacrificial prayers of others. Y'all dig what I'm saying? And we're, you know, I, even... I was thinking about when can we talk about prayer. We might even do it this month, talking about prayer, this series. But just real quick, it's going to take like a whole sermon to do it. But prayer is something that you, is a tool that you have. Think about tools. Do you ever have a hammer and, and think, well, hammer, I hope that you help this nail to work properly. And you put it on the table and say, Hammer, I really hope that you cause this nail to go into that piece of wood. If it's in your will. Hammer. No, right? You use a hammer. You use the tool. And you have 
commitment to it. You swat it on that nail. You're committing to doing something, right? There's an end result. In our prayer life, that's the way we should pray. We're not just praying like, God, like let a mystical peace come down on us with butterflies and rainbows. Be, that would be cool to see, though. But we need to pray with energy, with aggression, banging those prayers into this world, saying, no, this will change. This will happen. And be intentional with our prayers that we're actually focused on an end result. Y'all dig what I'm saying? Someone say prayer. prayer. Let me share with y'all two more verses and we're going to close up. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Or we'll start with Psalm, oh, we'll start with 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. It says, give all your worries and cares to God. That's usually all we hear. What does the end say? For he cares about you. That's a coffee mug right there. You can make a million dollars by just selling those coffee mugs. What does it say? Because he cares about you. Why is it that we think God is annoyed with our prayers? Why is it that we think that God is so fed up with us? The Bible's saying, no, he wants to answer them not just because you're bugging him, but because he cares about you. Let that sink into your soul for a second. What does the next verse say in Psalm 34, verse 4? It says, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. That's, that's a, that's a freaking powerful verse, right? He freed me from all my fears. Isn't that what anxiety and depression is? An overload of fear? Again, I'm not saying, I mean, everything we talked about is collectively, but I'm not saying that prayer is the only thing you have to do and it's going to make everything better. But prayer is like a glue to all of this. We need community. We need transparency. We need to throw off those lies and those labels. There's a lot of work to be done. We got a whole schedule here. Most important thing is we got to be open and honest Trust one another and understand that you're not going to be fixed in one day. You're not going to be fixed overnight. I just told you all my story of how it was years of a journey fighting. The moment that that fight became easier is when I let other people in. Y'all dig what I'm saying? The final, final thing. This is the final of the final. Someone say final. It's a comparison. I want to make a comparison of anxiety and depression in the Bible. Are y'all waiting for that? Where is a story that I could see someone anxious or depressed in the Bible? Where is that? Can you think of a person? Maybe you're thinking Job. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know any guys in the Bible. Jesus, was he depressed? <laughs> I know he's in there. David. Adam. <laughs> When Eve ate the fruit, he was with her, so he's probably anxious, thinking like, I don't know if you should eat that. But then he ate it too, and so afterwards, when they got kicked out of the garden, he's probably depressed. What is a good comparison of anxiety and depression? I got two. Two people we're going to look at, and that's Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter. 
Those of you who hablas español, Judas y Pedro. <laughs> See, both Judas and, G and Peter, both of them made mistakes of betraying Jesus. Both of them betrayed Jesus. Judas, he went to the Pharisees and, and forced Jesus into the, the capture that led to his crucifixion. While Peter, he betrayed Jesus three times when he was following from a distance. And they asked him, are you with him? He said, no, I'm not with that guy. Began cursing and saying, heck no, I'm not with that guy. No way. Because he didn't want to get any of the punishment that Jesus was getting. Both of them betrayed and rejected Jesus. Think about that for a second. Let's look at Judas and, and, and Pedro at a, closer, at a closer examination. When Judas betrayed Jesus, a lot of people just assume that guy's the worst. We just think of Judas and we think of him having his eyebrows all squinted. He just looked mad the whole time. I've seen some Judases at church. They just look like they're already mad, ready to get you. And, but let, I think a lot of us, we don't realize how much we can identify with Judas. See, Judas, a lot of theologians believe that when he betrayed Jesus to the Pharisees, the disciples in that time, they believed that Jesus' kingdom was an earthly kingdom. They believed that Jesus just wasn't, he wasn't uh, bringing the kingdom yet because he was being too timid. Judas was trying to, some believe that Judas was trying to force Jesus to just bring his kingdom to earth so that they can reign everlasting. That he was actually helping Jesus by forcing his hand to do something that was prophesied about. That this is, this is going to happen. He just, he just needs someone to help push him along. And... When he did that, he tried to force Jesus. Look at Peter. When the difference between Judas and Peter, Peter tried to follow Jesus from a distance. We can identify with that too, right? Times when we try to make God do what we want him to do. Times where we follow Jesus from a distance, living however lavish, uh, crazy, sinful lifestyle we want. And we're saying, yeah, but I do believe in God. Yes, sir, that is correct. I am a, I'm a believer. I'm just a ninja believer. You just wouldn't be able to tell. You didn't even know I was in the room. That's my Obama voice, by the way. <laughs> See, Peter was trying to follow Jesus at a distance. He, he's, it's, show, it's showing us, it's exemplifying all the times where we try to follow Jesus from a distance. Not being close to him, but still trying to say that we see him. Judas, he... He made something wrong sound right in his mind. You ever rationalize something? You justify something that in your heart you know is wrong, but in your mind you work it out to well, like, well, this is the best decision for us to do. You know, I, we, you know biblically, yeah, we, this might be questionable, but it's just what we have to do right now. I'm in, I, I, one of my jobs, uh, the other day I counted all the different uh, jobs that I have. I have over eight jobs. It's ridiculous. Edward, what's up? Um, and one of the jobs I have is in sales. How many of y'all hate sales? Y'all hate salesmen? Me too. I'm not the traditional salesman, okay? I'm not the guy that's going to just bang both of our heads against the wall until one of us gives up. 
Usually when people tell me they're not interested, I'm like, hey, thanks. I didn't want to waste my time either. <laughs> but there's some guys that I know that they, they'll, most salesmen just lie. <laughs> I've come to find out that some of the best salesmen are just really good liars. And I remember asking one guy, he's telling me how, how he would sell. And I remember just like, you just lie to them? Like, well, yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's just to, you know, it's what I have to do for my family. It's like, man, how do you sleep at night? Sleep pretty good. <laughs> and see, that's something like we justify, we know that it's wrong, we know lying is wrong, but we justify in our mind, like, this is just my job. I have to do this to make money. See, that's what Judas did when he betrayed Jesus. He thought he was making it right, even though he knew that it was a wrong way. But any, any end where the means is wrong only makes the end wrong too. Y'all dig what I'm saying? Peter, he did what was wrong out of fear. Judas made something wrong seem right. Peter, he was afraid. He was afraid of what would happen if he was with Jesus. So he did what was wrong out of fear. Both of us, both those people we identify with, right? We've all done all those things. Judas is starting to sound a lot more like us, right? Here's the thing that people forget about Judas. He tried to fix his mistake. He tried to reverse what happened. Did you know that Judas went back to the Pharisees with the, with the coins that they gave him? And he said, take it. He threw it at their feet. He said, I don't want this. This isn't what I wanted. Please just take the money back. Stop this whole thing. He had remorse and guilt. You ever feel like that? You try to backpedal, reverse what you said? I didn't mean it. But oftentimes, you can't take those things back. You have to live with that guilt. You have to live with that shame. We're just like Judas. And then Peter, what did he do? He ran away from his mistakes. It said that after Jesus was crucified that he just went back to fishing. Just went back to doing what he was doing before he even ever found God. How many of us do that? Just go back to all the drugs. We go back to all the wild living. I I can't make it like this. I just need to go back to what I used to do. Just run away from the problem. Maybe I just need to move. I just need to get out of this place. I need to get out of this city. I need to get away from all these problems. Too many memories here. Just run away. Now, here's the, the, the biggest comparison. This is the difference maker. Judas says that he made an irreversible decision. He committed suicide. He hung himself. All that guilt weighed so heavy on his heart. It's not what he wanted. He didn't mean for that to happen. He killed himself. He made an irreversible decision. And what did Peter do is that he carried the weight of time. Isn't that the hardest thing to carry? Time. Ever have a bad breakup? The hardest part about it is just waiting for you to feel better. Have something horrible happen. The most difficult thing is just to wait it out. A lot of time to heal. A lot of time to forget. That's a difference. That's the difference between Peter and Judas in the end. 
both of them rejected Jesus. And, and as crazy as it may sound, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross forgives all sins. I believe that Judas could have been forgiven. He, didn't, he couldn't wait. He couldn't allow that time to elapse. could have just waited three days. could have a moment to go back to Jesus. And see, it says that when, when Peter found Jesus again, said that, that he was out in the boat, the disciples went with him, he had that community to help him through it. Judas didn't have that community. He felt like an outcast after what he did. Peter had that community, and they said, hey, you're going to go fishing, we're going to go with you, man. You're not in this alone. It's all right. And it says that when they were out on the boat, Jesus came resurrected on the shore, yelled out to them. And John, the beloved, he said, it's the Lord. It's Jesus. He's back. And said that Peter literally just jumped into the water and swam to shore over 100 yards. Have you ever ran a football field? Have you ever swam a football field? I could barely do a couple laps in a little pool. He swam to shore. I just imagine him. That time even just swimming, him aggressively swimming, barely able to breathe, current trying to take him back to the boat, but he's just pressing and swimming to the shore, going back to Jesus. And it said that when he got to Jesus and all the disciples came afterwards with, and it said that they, that they pulled a load, that the, it was, the net should have tore because there was so many fish. And Jesus said, bring one of those fish, I'll make y'all some fish tacos. While the disciples were barely getting out of the boat, Peter rushed, grabbed the whole net by himself. Superman pulled all the fish himself to the shore and said, here you go, Jesus. He's just trying to earn that love back from God. You ever try to do that? Try to earn that love back? See, the thing with God, though, is that He loves us unconditionally. That the moment that you realize you were the worst sinner ever, God loved you the most. And the moment that you tried being the best Christian you could be, God loved you still the most. It didn't change. And there's a point where Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, Peter? He said, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. And he said, then feed my sheep. He said, do you love me, Peter? Peter said again, Yes, God, you know that I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. And he asked him a third time, because Peter betrayed him three times, said, Peter, do you love me? And at that point, Peter felt so remorseful in his heart. He said, God, you know that I love you. Only you know that. And Jesus tells him at the point that he made the biggest mistake of his life. He said, you are going to be used to do the greatest things for God. He tells him even to the point of that he's going to be martyred. So you're going to be such an influence for the kingdom of God, even as, as pitiful as you may feel within yourself, you're going to do amazing and great things for me. My love for you hasn't changed. That, I mean, the power of him being able to wait and see God's redemption and forgiveness Made it so worth it. I want you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here 
At some point in this message, you realize that you need that redemptive forgiveness, that redemptive walk with God. You need that closure with Jesus Christ. And you need to surrender something to Him right now. And you're ready to make a commitment and say, Jesus, I want everything. I want You to be my Savior, my Lord. If that's you, with every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. I see your hands. I see your hands. And so, if you rose your hand, I want you to repeat this prayer after me. And if you've already given your life to Christ, I want you to repeat this prayer too as a reaffirmation of your faith. The Bible says in the book of Romans that all you have to do experience this kind of forgiveness in your life is to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth and surely you shall be saved that you don't have to doubt God's love for you anymore you don't have to doubt God's relationship with you anymore so repeat this prayer after me say Lord Jesus I believe in you I believe your love for me I believe you're the Son of God. That you died on the cross for me. And that you rose from the dead. I put my hope in you. And I put my trust in you. Be the Lord of my life. And the Savior to my soul. Show your glory in my life. In Jesus' name. With all your heads bowed and eyes still closed. If you're here and you've been struggling with anxiety and depression, either one of those, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. I see your hands. So right now, I want everybody here to stand up. Everyone stand up. And I want y'all to keep this kind of, this, this subtle atmosphere. I want y'all to keep your eyes closed. And I want you to just have a moment with God right where you're at. I want you to just imagine God in front of you. For a second, just imagine there's nobody else in the room. That Jesus standing right in front of you. loves you, one who rose from the dead, staying right in front of you, just right where you're at in a faint whisper, I want you to tell him how you really feel, tell him the truth, Jesus, I am so scared, I am so overwhelmed, I feel like each day is on a win because I don't know if I can make it that day. I feel so lonely. I feel so lost. I don't know what to do right now. I don't know what to do tomorrow. I'm afraid. And all I do know is that I hate feeling this way. 
I give all this pain to you. I give these memories to you. I give this hurt to you. I give this doubt, this fear to you. Now just to yourself, I want you to ask Jesus, what will you give me? What will you give me, God? For all of my failures and all of my fears. What is God telling you? You hear God saying, my child, I give you love. I give you all that I am. You may have thought that I reserved myself away from you, but I give you all of myself, my child. I'm not a mystery to you. I'm not hidden from you. I'm here. I make myself known to you. All that I have, I put in you. God, give your people joy. Give your people peace. Give your people strength. Give your people a fire, a passion. Redemption, forgiveness. God, let your glory and your presence be in them right now. That they would experience your power, your peace, your presence, your wonder, God. And that from this point forward, they'd be sensitive to your voice. That they wouldn't need anybody else to tell them what God says because you will tell them directly. You speak to your children. God, I ask, finish what you started in your people here today. We are grateful for you, Jesus. We're grateful for your sacrifice. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful for making a way. We don't identify with our past anymore. We identify with you, Jesus. Before our pain, before our past, before our childhood, before our memories, before anything else, we identify with Jesus Christ. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Can we clap for God? Y'all feel good about the Come on, let's get a little little more energy. Yeah. Yeah, it feels good. It feels good. I want you to give your neighbor a high five before you sit down. Give your neighbor a high five.